Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is What's Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close, something they feel passionate about. I want to start a conversation to educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. So hello, welcome to episode 16 of What's Your Cause? So in the last episode, I did something a little bit different in which I went back and recapped episodes one to six. So basically went back to where it all began. And on the back of that, I received some really great feedback. So I thought, why not? Why not go again? So this episode, episode 16, is going to feature episode 7 to 11. So in episode 7, um, I interviewed Sam Payne, who is the co-founder and CEO of Pink Elephants. And um, Sam is someone I've known for many years and someone who I've admired for many years. And um, the work that she does is truly inspiring. Um, but I think the, the real quality of this episode is, is that you get to hear Sam's lived experience and she shares it. She's obviously so vulnerable. Um, but also you get to see where it ignited um, the passion for her to do the work that she does and to support so many um, women who experience um, early pregnancy loss. Um, so that was episode seven and she then nominated Rosie Thomas um, from Project Rocket. Now Rosie is a force of nature, you hear that in the episode and she shares with us how her and her sister on the back of um, high school went about tackling bullying. Not a small thing to tackle, but the work the Project Rocket does and, and, uh, and what Rosie's been able to do has been um, nothing but uh, astonishing. And I think um, you hear that in the episode and you hear the importance of the work that she does. And on the back of that, Rosie um, nominated Ashley Streeter-Jones, who is the um, founder and CEO of Raise Her Voice Australia. Um, and she in this episode you know shares how she's lifting the floor in regards to creating gender equality for young women and gender diverse people in politics fascinating conversation really educational and uh, i think we're really blessed to be able to have ash as a guest and um, to share her experience and uh, her knowledge in this space and from there she nominated taylor d hawkins who is the managing director of foundations for tomorrow so in this episode, we speak about everything um, from voting to the concerns that young people um, have um, for the future and how Foundations for Tomorrow is leading the work in this space. And it's easy to, to hear in this conversation how um, Taylor is a leader in this space and how she is focused on shaping a future that is bright and sustainable um, for future generations. And then we jump to episode number 11 and um, to Susan Harris Rimmer. Susan is the co convener of Griffith Gender Equality Research Network and also leads the climate justice team for Griffith Climate Action Beacon. In this episode, we speak about everything from you know her upbringing and um, how she you know got involved and how she found her kind of social justice and, and how she found her passion um, for human rights she speaks about united nations we talk about immigration centers and really what you get from this is, is how driven susan is in creating a you know a fairer world um, and to tackling you know human rights issues and other issues through her research and through her papers and and uh, and it's such important work that she does um, and, and it was a, a pleasure to have her share that with us as well. So I'm going to leave it there. And uh, we're going to jump into this uh, 
Let's go back episode 16 of What's Your Cause. So welcome to episode 7 of What's Your Cause. Um, I am very excited to find my next guest. Um, so joining me today is uh, Samantha Payne. And uh, yeah, welcome, Sam. Hey, Mick. Good. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So... Um, you know the podcast, uh, you know what it's about, so let's just uh, let's just jump in. So, Samantha Payne, what's your cause? My cause is providing a circle of support for all those who experience a miscarriage or an early pregnancy loss. I had my own journey, and um, nearly eight years ago now I had my first experience of a miscarriage, and I was met with a lot of silence, nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, I met with a lot of comments around at least it happened early or at least you already have a child you'll be pregnant again soon enough and whilst all of that was coming from a good place it wasn't helpful Um, it actually made me feel far worse about my loss I felt like nobody really understood the depth of my grief and then I had another miscarriage a few months later so it really was one of those years where it was kind of back-to-back losses and it was after my second loss that I was like If this happens so common, for want of the better word, but that's what society tells us, it's one in four pregnancies, then why is there no support? Why is there nothing there for me to help me understand what's happening to me, how I feel, what I do next? All of these questions I had and I had nowhere to answer them. And that's where's the beginning of Pink Elephants. I decided, well, if no one else has created it, I'm going to do something. What I thought then naively would be a Sydney support network. (laughs) quite quickly oh no not quickly it's now seven years it's now a national support charity that provides support to around eight thousand parents each month through our online platform so yeah it's, it's grown phenomenally but yeah my cause is early pregnancy loss and making sure that anyone who goes through it feels like they have a circle of support around them and they're not alone so it's a really interesting stat isn't it one in four and um, just Stepping back a little bit, you talk about your experience with um, pregnancy loss and uh, and I'm interested in the language that's used um, and I'd yeah, it'd be great if you could kind of, you know, share with us a little bit about, about that language because I, I think it can be a little bit like medical and um, very medical and, and some of the terms in that could, can come across as very dismissive. A hundred percent. So that's one of the things that Pink Elephants we try and challenge is the language. The language for pregnancy loss hasn't been updated in 50 to 100 years. If we start with the medical side of things. So when it was my first miscarriage, I was referred from my sonography clinic, which confirmed that my baby had no heartbeat. And my GP then referred me for what's known as an ERPC. And that's an evacuation of remaining products of conception. And that was just horrific to me because that was my baby they were talking about removing from me. But yet to them, because it happens all the time and it is common in a hospital and a healthcare setting, it is evacuation of remaining products of conception. And that just felt so clinical and so dismissive of the fact that that was actually a baby that lived inside of me that a week earlier had a heartbeat. So that is one aspect of language you then also find things like that we record miscarriages as spontaneous abortion and and whilst i am completely pro-choice and i want all women to have the choice over their own bodies and their own uterus and i don't think anyone else would have a say over it 
that shouldn't mean that we capture miscarriage in the same category as and use language like abortion because that can actually be really triggering um, for our community as well. So we have to be really careful about the language. The medical world needs some huge updates over here in Australia. And then well-meaning, loved friends, family, wanting to make me feel better but not quite knowing how would then say things like, at least it happened early or at least you have another child. And I get it, right? When someone's grieving, you want to make them feel better. You want to find that balm, that thing that makes them feel soothed and loved and so we go to finding a silver lining in shit situations. But the problem is with this type of loss and grief, there really is no silver lining. There is no reason that I have lost three babies um, and I, I don't need to be met with sympathy. What I actually need is empathy. I need people to acknowledge the loss. I'm sorry your baby died or I'm sorry for your loss is completely enough. And then meet me how you would meet anybody else who's experiencing any other type of loss. What would you do for that loss? So if that's send flowers or turn up with a hot cooked meal or look after older children, then it should be exactly the same in this situation as well. And unfortunately, eight years ago with miscarriage, that just wasn't the case. Nobody um, would even talk about it. And like I said, if they did talk about it, it was in hushed, quiet whispers. And then there was a lot of that minimizing conversation to try and make someone feel better. But what we know now is that doesn't work. Um, we ran a huge campaign last year that was really successful and that was our hashtag at least and it really started that conversation around moving from at least to I'm sorry your baby died or I'm sorry for your loss and really providing that validation. We know that if we disenfranchise a person's grief experience what we do is we isolate them because it tells them that you don't understand how I'm feeling or what they're going through so then they don't speak and share anymore and then they feel further isolated and then they're more likely to have poor mental health outcomes such as anxiety, post-traumatic stress and even suicidal thoughts. So there's research from the UK now that points to clinical levels of anxiety and post-traumatic stress nine months after a miscarriage and we have this really awful misperception that when a woman has a miscarriage a week later she's absolutely fine and ready to go again and that's often not the case at all. Um, some women absolutely that might be for them but we would say the majority of women that we hold space and we support we will hold space for them for a period of one to three years it's not just when they experience the loss of the baby and the miscarriage there it's also further on when that woman goes to try and conceive again that fear around okay I might be willing to try and have another baby because ultimately what I want is a baby in my arms it doesn't mean I'm not grieving the loss of the baby that I've just had. Yes, I'm willing to look to the future a little bit more, but I'm really tentative here because what if I have another miscarriage? And then you do fall pregnant again. Most women, 80% of women will go on and have a healthy full-term pregnancy after a miscarriage, which is great. And that's very hopeful to share that. But it doesn't take away from the anxiety that's felt during that pregnancy. During that pregnancy, I can't tell you the number of stories and personal experience as well every time you go to the bathroom you're expected to see blood because that's happened before and um, every time you feel a twinge which is perfectly normal in pregnancies you feel like your baby is dying and it's this constant balance of anxiety and joy of a new pregnancy and it's a really really difficult path to walk and again that's why pink elephants provide support not just for the miscarriage grief but for the whole journey until that woman welcomes a baby in her arms because ultimately that's what she's working towards and some women don't go on to have other children and that needs to be normalized as part of the conversation as well not everyone will
and that's okay that's a different journey but they also deserve validation and empathy and understanding about where they are where they've landed what's brought them to that point and I guess again it comes from opening up this whole conversation around this taboo topic of miscarriage we need to talk about it more and that's everyone needs to talk about it not just those that have gone through it because if it is one in four pregnancies that end in loss the chances are you yourself have got loved ones friends family who have gone through this or are going through this and maybe not opening up and sharing to you because they're not sure how they're going to be met if they share this experience so they stay quiet Rosie Thomas, what's your cause? Well, that's a good question given the podcast I'm on, Mick. Um, the cause that I guess I'm most passionate about that I've been dedicated to, I'm going to say my whole life, is actually an issue that's been around for not just decades and centuries, but it feels ageless. And it's actually the issue of bullying, hate, prejudice, discrimination, all of the other issues that fuel bullying in all of its forms. That's what I'm really passionate about. I'm really interested, all right, because you say, all right, you finish high school and it would have been quite easy, I reckon, Rosie. Like, no one would have forgiven you for just going on and doing your life and, and, and your sister and Lucy doing that. Yeah? Nick, you've met but me. You were drawn back. Am I, am I the Yeah, well, I have met you. <laughs> but no, you're not a person that's, that's backwards and going forwards. And, and I know you're so driven and passionate about social justice and that. So it never, it does not surprise me at all. But what I would be keen to know is like, you're what, 18 years of age and around that age, 19 years of age, right? And you leave high school and you could go one direction where you say, no, you know what? We've got to do something about this, yeah? So you and your sister spring into action. But that's easy said. How was it done? So what were the steps that you took in them early days to get Project Rocket off the ground and actually, you know, into schools and so forth as well? Can you, can you break that down for, for us? For sure, yeah. So I guess, like, first of all, a lot of people ask, or a lot of people asked early on, teachers, skeptical teachers early on would ask, what's your qualification? And... I probably should have had a qualification, but at the same time, I don't know what I possibly could have gone out and learned beyond the best qualification that I had. And that was that I was a young person. I had a really, really clear understanding of the issue. I'd experienced it myself. Year eight was a horrible year for me, Mick. Um, I knew all about it. I, I also had a really, really clear um, idea of the impacts that it had on my peers and most importantly, we had an idea for how we could tackle it. And it was pretty distinct from the outset. It was a, um, yeah, basically a clear idea based on all of the things that didn't work when we were at school. And having just left, we were sort of the guinea pigs. And so I guess like first up, we, we came up with a new idea for what we wanted to see at school. So we were like, if this is the old world, it's like apathy, bullying, like power in numbers being used for evil, like all this horrible stuff going on. Well, what's our new world? So we came up with this new idea and it's a simple belief but it's endured us all these years and it's this, it's that we believe in a world where kindness and respect thrive over bullying, hate and prejudice and every young person is free to realise their potential. Now, can you imagine every person, every young person being just free to be themselves? Like that, the power of that, we see bullying, as I said before, it craps on people, like it. It, it literally, as I explained over the course of a year and year and years in high school, it smothers your development. Like it actually extinguishes the opportunities. And so we had this new idea. And basically, um, as I said, also all these things that didn't work when we were at school. So Mick, first up, I remember when I was a student, and this still goes on a bit, but I'm sure you can recall from your time too. These were the approaches around the issues that young people face. You'd have um, typically an older person come in 
I was often often an old old white dude. I'm not gonna lie, like a scary old ex police person, like a police a cop, come in and sort of waggle your finger, waggle his finger at you, um, tell you off, talk about the doom and the gloom, and label young people as bullies and victims. These really both very damaging labels, and try and just scare you into doing the right thing, or they just bore you with a PowerPoint presentation. It was so unbelievably unrelatable. And we decided from there, we're like, right, we're going to do something really, really different. What do we want? We are young people. What do we want? One, it's got to be inspirational. It's got to be creative and fun. Like these issues have such a negative stereotype. Like the minute you walk into school and you say, even today, hey, kids, I'm here to talk about the issue of bullying. Like what do you expect? Eyes roll to the back of the head, like the, the, the loud groans. And do you blame them? You expect all of that negative judgment. And so what we want to do is really turn that on its head by going into schools, first and foremost, sending young people, relatable, respectful, um, diverse young people into schools to run workshops that work with young people instead of just like talking at them that are creative and inspirational and basically get to talk about the stuff that we didn't talk about when we were at school. We had no idea if it was going to work, obviously, Mick. Um, In fact, um, our hardest part early on, and this is so hard to believe at the time, but back then in 2006, there just were no anti-bullying programs in schools like this. And so we had to t- we had to convince teachers that there should even be anti-bullying workshops in schools. This is a time when there was no well-being in the curriculum. You know, there was no time put aside to look after the, and care for young people in this way. Then we had to convince them that it shouldn't be them running it, the teachers shouldn't deliver it, adults shouldn't, that it should be young people, and then convince them that they should pay us to do it. So it was a really, really slow start, you know, I always joke that like our, our third silent business partner was Google because clearly after finishing high school, I had no business experience. I'd never heard the word like entrepreneur before, let alone I hadn't found my people. There was no like social change landscape at the time. People just thought we were nuts. Like I actually reckon even family members didn't get what we were doing until like five years ago. So, but we set about small and we started testing this thing in schools. You know, what happens when you do create a space where a cohort walks into the room as individuals and you spend the day with them and you actually get to connect them to each other and build those emotional connections with one another, see them in a new light, develop empathy for one another, and then come up with strategies together that young people would actually be willing to use. So not like the crap I was told when I was at school. I bet you were told this when you were at school, Mick. There were three strategies to standing up to bullying. Ignore it, walk away, or tell a teacher basically. And the reality is that stuff just so much of the time doesn't work. And especially now that we're online so much. So I guess like, you know, over time though, we started to see that, hang on, this thing is working. Like at the end of the day, that cohort of individuals would walk out as a collective and we'd see that we'd be having these conversations. Like with a bunch of year 11 guys, we were talking about like misogyny at school. And I'll say that as like a 19 year old girl, that was pretty daunting to be in a room testing this stuff out as guinea pigs, like trialing this new approach of like creativity and show not tell. So using random social experiments and games and real life stories instead of just telling messages at young people. We had no idea if it would work, but over time it sort of did. And and I think like we had no grand plans to start an organisation. I honestly didn't know that you could as a young person. I didn't know. I had no one to look to. Had I realised that Project Rocket would grow to reach 600,000 young people like directly in our workshops alone, 
I never would have had the confidence to do this. Like there's no way I would have thought I did. But actually this groundswell started and over time we actually started attracting other young people like us who not only wanted more Project Rocket in their school, but then they finished school and they wanted to join <laughs> Project Rocket and, and they wanted to deliver the workshops in schools. And before long we realised that this wasn't a little community project or a little side hustle business, that actually it was, yeah, a movement that was instigated by a workshop in schools but was led by a bunch of hungry young people who were dissatisfied with the way that school was, the power dynamics, and and I guess saw an opportunity to create that change at school, you know, and in online spaces and, and beyond that. Because what happens when um, young people are mistreated or when young people bully others? What happens when they grow up? They become adults who are mistreated and bully others. So I guess, like, o- over the years, um, you know, Project Rocket's evolved in so many different ways, and I've grown up doing this. Like, Project Rocket raised me, you know, it's my other parent, all the young people that we've worked with. But I guess like the, the one thing that I've, I've sort of been drawn to is this idea that we can create a more inclusive, compassionate society and it starts with young people. Ashley Sweeter-Jones, what's your cause? I am particularly passionate about increasing the number of young women and gender diverse people in politics and policy. And can you explain to our listeners um, how you're doing that? Yeah, sure. So I'm the CEO and founder of Raise Our Voice Australia. So we're a non-partisan social enterprise that's been around since 2020. So it was a COVID baby. And our approach to this has really evolved over time. So it started with a training program, uh, which was really my brainchild and a reflection of my experience working in domestic policy, foreign policy, and then previously working in and around issues-based political campaigning. Something I'd noticed in all of those spaces is that there were particular groups of people absent, and overwhelmingly that was young people, it was young women and gender-diverse people, and people really who weren't middle-class, tertiary-educated, white, non-disabled, and overwhelmingly men. So I sat in that question of, well... Why me? What is it that I specifically, as Ashley Streeter-Jones, can bring to this cause to make this change? And I landed on the training program because it was a way of sharing my knowledge, sharing some of the skills that I developed, but also sharing networks. And I'm really passionate about building community. So it was a way of connecting passionate, like-minded people with each other, because we know the importance of networks and communities in supporting our progress. From there, we've evolved to adopt the Raise Our Voice in Parliament campaign. So this is a campaign where we go out to federal MPs and senators and we ask them to give up one of their 90-second constituent speaking slots to read a speech written by a young person from their state, territory or electorate. We have done research to make sure that we are thoroughly understanding the problem that we're setting out to solve and that we're really hearing from members of, of our community as well. And then finally, we are currently working on our alumni and community building program as well. I'm interested in how you get into politics, how your background and your upbringing um, can shape that as well. Um, And where I'm going with this, Ash, is right. When I look at politics, not just in Australia, around the world and so forth, I see the people that are in in the hot seats. I see the people that that are representing their constituents and representing the country, states, everything, yeah? And I think to myself, how do they get there? And how does someone from a low social economic background get there? And is there a level, 
a fair and level playing field. So lived experience and people that have so much to give, but maybe do, will never get an opportunity because their education is not at the level. Um, their opportunities are not given because of where they come from or where they were born or the family that they're within. It's just not there for them, yeah? And I find that really unfair and I find it a real big missed opportunity um, in politics. And I feel there's an opportunity for people who normally would never think of ever becoming a politician because they, because people from where they come from or people that speak like them um, do not become politicians. Yet they would have so much to give. And then I see politicians and I think, how can you speak about something that I, that is so, you look so removed from what this topic is. How can you speak about it? And then you hear them bumbling through it and you go, this is, there's got to be a better way. Does that make a lot of sense? Like that's where I'm going. Can you kind of break that down? Because you've done campaigns and you know all that in behind it. Like what needs to change there? Or what's, I'll be really keen to get your thoughts on that. This is an excellent question. And I don't think it's something we're talking enough about in political spaces, which is the socioeconomic element. So you are entirely right to touch on that. I think the perennial challenge with this really is that to be elected in the first place, you have to do a lot of unpaid labour. So let's assume that you're a politician who has gone down the party pathway. Okay, great. So you need to be able to turn up to party meetings outside of work hours, which are obviously unpaid. You need to be able to show up and pay your dues to the party, which might look like everything from turning up to meetings to running and hosting fundraisers to working on other people's election campaigns to maybe even having a few failed attempts at running for office yourself. So they'll start you in a low probability seat and then they'll work you up to something which is actually winnable once you've built up the skill set. That is a lot of unpaid labour. No one pays you to campaign. So before you even get there, you really have to put in a lot of time and it's time that is not available to so many people for socioeconomic reasons, unpaid care work reasons, sometimes it's proximity reasons. So obviously Australia, we've got a huge rural and remote population. Sometimes it's, it is a question of access. And I've heard some people saying, well, everybody get, gets access to their MP and everybody gets access to democracy. And yes, to an extent, that's true. That's true by virtue of the fact that you don't have to pay to get access. But that doesn't mean that everybody can pay in that other currency which we rely on, which is their time. And there's been some really interesting news pieces come to light as well around the way that money does function in politics, whether that's been through lobbyists and really getting this pay to access. So we know, for example, that a lot of fundraisers, which political candidates host, you pay for a ticket to attend. Um, and who has the money to pay for those tickets? That's also split down socioeconomic and corporate lines. Those, if you pay for a ticket to attend an event, it's not considered to be a political donation, therefore it's not disclosable. Therefore, you don't have to show the public who's getting access to you. Conversely, at the most recent election, we saw Climate 200 play a significant role in supporting political candidates from particular backgrounds. They did that through pumping money into their campaigns 
And yes, they were doing this along a particular value line, but it was extremely successful. And in doing so, they upset the way that money is traditionally functioned in those spaces. But I think it's also worth looking at where have most of our politicians come from? What is their educational background? Well, most people are at a minimum tertiary educated. Most have finished schools. I'm prepared to bet that most of them would be from capital cities if we weren't regionally split. They're of a particular age profile. And coming back to what you said as well about lived experience, we still value a particular type of expertise. So this is a conversation I have a lot with young people, that young people are not represented in parliament. And even going through representative democracy, I think it's about 12% of our population is aged under 25. Those people are totally absent from our parliaments. So who is better to make decisions about your circumstances and your future than the people who actually have that expertise? So I think it's a really interesting question around how does money and access function in this space, but also what kind of expertise are we continuing to value? And we've seen this as well. I've had friends who are younger who've campaigned for parliament and they've been approached by people who say, well, what would you know? What are you taking in? So I hope that we're going through this social shift on how we value expertise, but I also worry that this isn't happening fast enough. Taylor, welcome to What's Your Cause? Thank you for having me. I am both excited and nervous. <laughs> well, I don't know why you should be nervous. I'm the one that's always nervous because I'm always talking to these amazing people. So, um, And every cause is different. So I'm always like a little bit nervous myself. You don't need to be nervous about anything, Taylor. Okay, I feel like I'm in safe hands. Excellent. Yeah, well, well look, we'll see. You, that might change by the end of it. We'll see. But anyway... Now, you were nominated by uh, the wonderful Ashley Streeter-Jones um, in my last episode, and uh, um, she's a wonderful, wonderful human being doing amazing things. So, Taylor Hawkins, what is your cause? Well, I'd love to start by saying yes, Ash is one of the most phenomenal young leaders I have ever had the chance of crossing paths with, and it was funny when I found out that she'd nominated me, and I understood the premise of the podcast, I sort of started unraveling what then became, you know, with your own life, sometimes you've never told your own story to yourself or worked out how on earth did I get here. Um, I feel very lucky that I have found an area that I am so deeply passionate about and know that this will be sort of the mission that my life works towards over the long term. But I was plotting back my years and, you know, I've been in the volunteer sector for 10 years I'm still in my 20s so I started incredibly young but I and anyone who knows me will tell you I'm not good at just picking one thing (laughs) it's probably one of my greatest personal weaknesses but I want to do everything and I I remember all the way through sort of my late teenage years and early 20s I was just overwhelmed by seeing all the different cause areas and all the different incredibly valid subjects that you can get into to try and make the world a better place because and and I say this as a generally optimistic person but the world as it stands is in a really challenging spot it's hard to find somewhere to look we like that is working perfectly (laughs) um and so I have meandered through a lot of different impact areas but I've landed in what's called future generations policy and and that can be called a lot of different things if I was to remove any jargon or any terms that anyone um, might not quite understand off the bat it would just be finding ways 
for our leaders to be able to think about the long term, because both in the way we've constructed society as well as in the way that our human brains work, we are programmed to just prioritize the short term and put off any of the long-term implications um, in the interests of sort of the, the quick wins. Um, and so then you see that manifest across climate, across technology reg regulation, uh, health, housing, education. Um, and so I am very lucky to have stumbled into a place where I can be fully committed to one issue, but it does cheekily allow me to sort of traverse all of the many areas that I could never pick between. Politics, when I first was around and I felt was very like a game, um, and and people played the game a little bit and there was no one that ever stood out um, that was like solution driven. They were more reactive to what everyone else was saying. So they were more jumping on someone else's voice than amplifying their own voice. Do you feel then that there is a shift in that um, that we're seeing in today's um, political landscape and young people are like beginning to shape that as well? Do you feel that? Definitely. I absolutely feel that. I feel... With the events of the last year, both with you know the experience of women in Parliament House, with the growing imperative for climate change, although I wish desperately that we'd taken quicker action, but the momentum's starting to head in the right direction. We need to take it even more seriously. But you know, a great example, Anjali Sharma and David Pocock putting forward a bill for a duty of care um, with regards to climate issues for future generations. So they're putting forward this idea of baking it into law. And it's funny when I explain this, anyone who hears it is like, well, this sounds like that should be the case, you know, our political leaders should have a duty of care to make sure that the decisions that they make are in the interests of people now and in the future, but it, it doesn't exist. And so the idea that that's being baked in, that it got support um, as soon as it was put in, you know, that's going to be a long journey to see if it's going to be successful. But Anjali, I think, is 19. Um, and so that's, that is the greatest evidence that someone who is still a teenager, who is so committed and she's wildly intelligent and capable, but she can fully step into this space, be taken so seriously that she's now at the absolute front line of developing this new approach to thinking about leadership in our country. Yeah, it's incredible to hear, um, to hear that as well. We'll move on a little bit, but just really quick question about this. Uh, voting age, do you feel it should be lowered? I feel it should be lowered. I feel that we also need a cultural shift and a shift in our education to support that, which I know is absolutely aligned with what's being argued for. But yeah, the work that um, that Run For It is doing, I think, is fantastic. And, and yes, I think that there are so many young people, even just look at Fridays for the Future, who have incredibly young people engaged in that movement. Those young people who want to be engaged deserve the right to have their voice heard. Absolutely. If you look at... Um the issues or the challenges that we face in the world? What, what are the key ones that young people, that you're hearing from young people that are like front and foremost, like the, the, the priority issues that they want to see addressed? Mm. Oh, well, world versus Australia, probably slightly different answers because one of the other hats I wear, I work for the UN Foundation working with young people from all around the world. And I can promise you the challenges we have here are very serious in turn, a lot of the challenges that young people are facing here compared to other countries, we're in a very lucky spot. So, But if we just focus on Australia, number one, housing. Um, that is a shock to no one. Very close to my heart because I just got informed yesterday that my lease will not be renewed. So <laughs> I'm about to be entering that wonderfully interesting landscape. Um, housing, health, education, climate. Um, a lot of the, you know, mental health is huge as well. Not only speaking about a system where we are under investing in preventative health care and so we're just being exactly as you said reactive 
but also that we're now in a space where young people's mental health is being impacted by our lack of long-term thinking. The anxiety that surrounds that, you know, not to mention wars in the world, etc. There is a huge amount of new externalities that are then influencing the mental health of young people. And Origin Institute recently um, did some research which created that uh, direct link and demonstrated uh, that the um, developments or lack thereof in climate policy are directly impacting the mental health of young Australians. So those are definitely areas that I think are proactively impacting young people and that I think would be tip of their tongue to talk about. Through our work with Foundations for Tomorrow, we actually explicitly focus more on what we call like existential risks. So that's things like pandemics, things like climate, things like technology um, as well, because it's an area that we felt that young people were underrepresented in, but that they do care about. So if you speak to a young person, do they think that technology is going to influence their life? They know that it will, but there's sort of a, a lower level of advocacy and focus um, from the youth movement space in that area. So, uh, Susan Harris-Rimmer, what's your cause? My whole whole life has been a series of causes, some of which have been tilting at windmills and um, others have been a bit more successful. But essentially, um, so I'm a country girl from Coonabarabra, New South Wales, and I don't exactly know why, but I became obsessed with social justice at a very young age, probably because, you know, Coonabarabra and gets a very raw deal in very many respects. Uh, so I was already, I was completely set on this idea of becoming this human rights lawyer and having no idea what that meant or, <laughs> or how on earth I would possibly ever in my life get to that point. But um, I was really lucky. I went to, uh, got sent away because Kinnabarabin doesn't have uh, the school that goes all the way through in the Catholic system. So they sent me away to Lismore um, and I was so lucky because I had this principal, uh, who was a nun, of course, uh, who had a PhD in physics. I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> and she <laughs> and she was like, right, the smart girls are going to go to uni and I'm going to make it happen with my extremely forceful personality. Um, she's passed away now, Sister Mary Canaan, but she was, she changed my life uh, completely. I was living in a caravan on my own on welfare and I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't gone to uni honestly so she but she did everything she enrolled me all of it because I had no idea how to do any of that she went to drove all the way down to Coonabarabran to have it out with my mum and my family priest about letting me go to university um they they had lots of valid concerns some of which were you know that they just brought in hex and, you know, for country kids, that amount of debt was just terrifying. Um, so anyway, I went to uni through a series of magically lucky events and the intervention of a, of a PhD nun. And I so right from the beginning, I was very interested in Amnesty International. So when I was at high school, I was interested in, like, writing letters. I must have been an incredibly painful teen. In fact, I know I was an incredibly painful <laughs> I was pointed out to me on regular occasions that I was incredibly painful teen, but I was obsessed with like social justice in around Lismore. So you know, I went to all the went to all the things I could possibly go to that had that kind of ring to them. Uh, and then when I got to uni, there was lots more opportunities to kind of think about um, human rights uh, as a as a as a calling as a vocation. 
Um, that was not something the law school encouraged, that's for sure. Uh, it's a very conservative law school. I was the only kid on our study there, so I won all the prizes for, you know, the not well-off. I was yeah. the only one, so I won everything. And they would, it was just so embarrassing and mortifying every single time. But, um, but I really needed the money in the book, so I took it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I got this underlying cause around, you know, that, just because you grow up dirt poor in the middle of nowhere doesn't mean you're not smart and doesn't mean you don't deserve opportunities. So clearly, for me, education was the anti-poverty vaccine. It is for a lot of people. So I have have an underlying cause that there is talent in every corner of this country that is that is being wasted because of lack of opportunity and, and lack of access. Always very interested in gender issues. So that was what I was most focused on. So I was most focused on sort of how do women... Um, how do women get justice from the crimes of war? So that was what most, you can imagine as a, I was a pretty painful uni student too, wasn't I really? Um, so that's what my honours thesis was about. It was about women's experience of, of um, conflict and, and the lack of justice for crimes against women and girls. And um, and then I thought, well, how am I going to make a career out of this? So I tried a few things. I, I went to, I did an internship at DFAT where I worked on war crimes Um met Sunninian Stephen, who was a big role model for me. Like he's just, he was just this gracious, intensely intelligent, humanist, warm kind of person who, who just embodied justice. He was just a beautiful human being. So I met him when I was working at, at DFAT and he was, that was a, that was amazing because he went and became a judge um, on the war crimes tribunal for the former Yugoslavia so I tried to arrange an internship to go and work at the War Crimes Tribunal as an intern so I could be there while he was being a judge. Um, and I worked on uh, the, in the sexual assault team, so as a final year lawyer. And I sold everything I had to be able to do that and I slept on my friend's floor. <laughs> it was just amazing. And then I, um, I also went, uh, from that internship at DFAT, I also got, a opportunity. I got a reference from the head of the legal division that helped me get a, a, a volunteering opportunity in Dadaab, which is a Somali refugee camp on the border of Kenya and Somali. So I did, also did that in my final year of uni. You continue to fight the fight and you continue to, you know, through your walk and your research and your papers and everything else, you just continue to, to really try and make inroads into it. Like, how hard is it? Like, you must, is there really long times where you just like, no matter what I do, this is not making a difference. Or can you? Or do you hang on to the to the small wins even greater because you can? You just have that optimism that it can open up something yeah. bigger. Yeah, my the book that's coming out is so depressing. It's about don't say that as a as a plug. Come on, Susan, we got to get this it's book out for better. Christmas. The book is perfect coming out. For Christmas so for, a, for a relative you really don't like. Um... <laughs> there it is. <laughs> It's about women's rights in Myanmar and Afghanistan, and I started it seven years ago now. So it's like from that period where there was a lot of hope um, from the period now. So, you know, it starts with Aisling Suu Kyi gaining power in the first election in Myanmar, the Taliban being ousted in Afghanistan, and, uh, you know, Unmet coming in, and, you know, so it's these transitional periods where we hoped that women's rights might flourish, and it's all gone so to, so very badly to custard, worse than I ever dreamed in both places, you know, so Myanmar's now, the army is 
trying to kill all its own young people and in Afghanistan women can't even leave the house pretty much you know, can't even go to a beauty salon is the latest or a national park or you know any public space essentially um, and that evacuation that was so awful to watch but but you also have this generation of women who know differently right and girls who know differently who know yeah. a different life so I keep so to your point I keep thinking to myself you know there is a generation of Afghan women who are educated and that can't be you can't uneducate someone that's why education so impre- so precious once you've got it, it can't be taken That's away brilliant. from you unless you, unless they kill you. It's there. Your mind is permanently opened and changed. And there's a whole generation of Burmese girls and young women and Afghan girls and young women for whom that is the case. Like, will it win the day? I don't know, but I still feel like there was some time and space that was bought for those that generation. And, you know, so a lot of them have, have left and will have lives as ex- exiles and expats, which is not ideal, but they will still be the future of those countries. This is also why refugees are so important. They're not just, not just individuals, but, you know, nations that might one day have a different path. You need those people to be able to go home. I saw that in Timor. You needed all those people to be able to go back and build a country again. So, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed going back and reflecting on episode 7 to 11. I look forward to sharing episode 17 of What's Your Cause with you very soon. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and share. If you want to follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, you will see the handles in the show notes. This podcast was produced and edited by Mick Cronin. Thank you.